Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and it means that it's time for Philippians. I'm so glad to have you all joining me again this morning for our second chapter of Philippians. We had such great attendance last week. I loved it. Um, and as I may have said to you last week, I was a little intimidated to do Paul. This is the first time I've ever taught a letter from Paul. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure how it would turn out, but I liked it. And I hope you did too. Um, for those of you who are used to this, you know that this live video allows me to engage with you and answer some questions that you ask in the chat. And so a couple things. I want to make sure that you let us know you are here. If you are here, say hello in the comments, either below or to the side, depending on if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. And in addition to just letting us know you're here or maybe even connecting with a friend that you see here, I want to encourage you to ask questions. That's what's great about this live study is that we get a chance to engage in real time. Um, Monica Rosser, who you have gotten to know over these last few months, is moderating the comments on both Facebook and YouTube. And so feel free to make a comment or ask a question. She'll let me know when those are there. And in case you don't want to ask a question or make a comment kind of publicly in the comment or chat thread, then I encourage you to email her. She's going to post her email address in the thread and she'll be checking that during class and then sending me things um, that I may be able to address live with you in an anonymous way. In case you want to remain anonymous, that is okay. Not everybody wants to be public in their comments or their questions. And so I'm glad to have you all here. Um, I hope that people have tuned in and joined. We give them just a minute. Um, we're going to begin by reminding you that in case you miss a class, we've got a section of our website at stmichael.org slash rbs. You can see the um, location, the URL just below. That has all of the classes that we've done over the last few years, including last week's class on chapter one. And so if you've missed any of those, visit stmichael.org slash rbs, Rector's Bible Study, and you can listen or watch those classes. And as I noted last week, I've had <clears throat> many people tell me that they've gone back now, that it's kind of summer and things have slowed down a little bit, and they've been listening to old classes and they've loved it. So, you know, do that as you will, check in as you're able, and keep up with the study that we're doing. So this is the second of four weeks of this special session in June on Philippians. We're gonna start with a prayer and get rolling. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this morning. We give you thanks for the gift of this life. And we ask that you bless each one of us, that you help to empty us of all those things that weigh us down, of those worldly fears and anxieties and concerns, that we may be filled up with your spirit. God, we give you thanks for all the people in our lives who help lift us up and guide us along the way. And I pray that each one of us will become more of a friend and a guide to those around us, helping to nudge and form people in your way to be your disciples here on earth. Bless this time that it inspires us and renews us and sends us away to do the work you've given us to do to help extend your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we especially hold in our prayers this morning all those who are sick or ill, all those who are nearing the end of their lives. 
that they know your presence and are surrounded by your love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get going. So last week we looked at chapter one, and just as a quick recap of chapter one, we learned that this is written by Paul. So this is St. Paul, who is going around and planting lots of churches, and it's written to one of those church communities that he helped to create, which is the church in Philippi. Philippi is in kind of northern, northeast Greece today, and that would have been the first community that we know of that would have been outside of kind of that Middle East or Eastern uh, Mediterranean area and really into what we might consider main Europe. And so Philippi is an important kind of first step into that European area that Paul and his friends will continue to move into and move west at least as far as Rome in order to plant churches in all of those known cities. Um, Paul prays for the community in a very specific way in this letter. This is a short letter. And so there's not a lot to it, but there's some good meat on these bones. And Paul prays, as we learned last week in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, um, that their love would overflow with knowledge. That was very important for Paul. This is a wise way to live. It's not just emotional, but it connects the heart and the mind in a way that we might not always connect. Um, And Paul prays that they'll be able to determine what's best. And another, another way of saying that, actually do what is Christ-like, do what is good in the world so that they will be blameless at the end, and that whatever work that they do, they will actually produce a harvest. They will bear fruit, so to speak. And Paul uses some of these same images that we see in the Gospels that Jesus uses, that if you're kind of, if your mind and your heart is yoked to God, then the work that you do will be godly work. And that work will also bear fruit. And you connect all of those things. You can't really hold any one of those things separate from the other because that's how we effectively create boundaries around our lives. We do not know God's mind in total. But Paul gives us a way of discerning whether or not we're kind of doing this stuff right, right? That we're doing this Christian way right. And if we kind of fall off on any one of those things, then we're not quite on the right path. And what we will see in chapter two is that we are meant to be doing this together. Um, Some of you have heard me say, um, you know, a question that sometimes people ask or people ponder is, can you be Christian on your own? And my answer is always, it's not a good idea. Because really, Christianity is meant to be something done in community, corporately. It's not this big individual process like some pop Christian theologians might say. We really need each other. We need each other to hold ourselves accountable to the kind of life that we really want to live. And we're going to see a lot more of that in chapter two. Finally, at the end of chapter one, Paul reminds us against false prophets that can lead us astray And we're going to see in chapter two that Paul puts more flesh there to help us understand that false prophet is not meant to be some kind of like evil villain or something like that. What it really is, it's people that articulate and represent what the world would have us do rather than what God would have us do. That really there is this struggle between the evil, so to speak, in the world 
that can lead us astray, can separate us and pull us away from God. And then what we see in Christ, which is God's invitation to be part of the kingdom right now, to do that kingdom work right now. And we need one another to help us stay on that path. So let's jump in, open your Bibles to chapter two. We're going to look at the first four verses. Now, as I, I forgot, I need to tell you the scope of the lesson. I always like to know the map of where we're going because it helps us to see the forest for the trees. And so today's lesson, chapter two, is going to be in four parts. Part one is about unity. Part two is looking at the mind of Christ. Part three is considering how salvation actually works. And then part four is the discussion on leadership in the community. So unity, the mind of Christ, how salvation works, and the way that leadership impacts our Christian communities. So we're going to start with the first part of today's lesson, unity. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So we'll pause there. This first section really emphasizes a big theme of Philippians, which is unity. This kind of unity is meant to combine and connect the community for the good of the gospel. That in essence, the work that we do as followers of Christ is never about us first, but it's about God. It's about God's kingdom. It's about spreading this good news beyond ourselves. That is the number one first purpose for the work that we do. And that kind of sounds good to us, right? I mean, I imagine that we all kind of hear that and think, yes, okay, I'm in. I can do that kind of gospel work as number one. But I do think that one of the things that we have to be honest about is kind of our human condition often tweaks that priority where we're not only doing good things first for the gospel. And that's just because we're human. And we can acknowledge that and we don't have to be ashamed or feel guilty about that. But it's still a real thing. You know, there's this old Jewish joke. Um, if you've got two rabbis, you've got three opinions. That's kind of like the church, right? I mean, we all know how it is to be in a church, and we know that when you get a bunch of people together in a room, you've got at least that many opinions. It is very often the case that when good people of faith get together, they prioritize their own opinions, their own feelings, their own understandings, and they're much likely, much more likely to speak their own opinions than they are to listen to one another's opinions, right? I remember I heard um, the other day that that old saying that I've heard so many times, God gave us two ears and one mouth. That means we are meant to listen at least twice as much as we are meant to speak. And it is that kind of listening and understanding, seeking a better knowledge of one another that actually bears the fruit of unity. You know, we are pretty quick to put our self-interests first. And I will say that we are almost, it's not even our fault. You know, we are, I'm going to go on a limb. Most of us watching this video now likely live in America. 
And we live in a culture that tells us regularly to put ourselves first, right? To look out for number one, that celebrates things like self-care and striving for our own advancement and success and really security, right? We live in a culture that tells us that's the stuff we're supposed to go after. That's the stuff we are meant to earn, that if we do the hard work, then we're going to be rewarded with all of those good things. Yeah, but here's the problem. That might feel good right now. That might satisfy us right now. But almost all of us have experienced some moment in our lives where we are focusing on ourselves and perhaps we even achieve the thing that we really, really think we want more than anything. And then we have a moment where we have to wonder, is that all there is? You know, when we get everything that we want, is that all there is? Or perhaps on the way toward getting everything we want, we have a major crisis and we fall off that path and we wander around in this wilderness of pain and sorrow and sadness. And then we realize that we cannot do this on our own. We were never meant to do life on our own. We are meant to be in this mess together and we are meant to be in this mess with God as well. God walks with us. We walk with one another. We were never meant to do this on our own. And so the kind of individualism, seeking after whatever is best for us, looking out for number one, that's just not gospel stuff. And so don't feel bad. We've all done it. I've done it. Absolutely, I've done it. But that's where our community comes in. Left to our own devices, we can get so far off the good path But when we are in unity with one another, when we are truly connected to one another authentically and vulnerably, then we actually hold one another on the path. And that's good. It's good for all of us. So I see one question has been asked. Um, Steve Steve asks, what version of the Bible? The RSV never matches. Um, okay, so Steve asked about versions of the Bible. That's We'll just pause for 40 seconds and do a little quickie on Bible stuff. So many of you who have been with me in the past know that I almost always start each yearly study off with just a, what is the Bible? How do we get it? What version do we read? That kind of stuff. So if you want a bigger explanation about this, go back and listen to one of the first weeks of either Genesis or Acts or Luke, and you'll find that I kind of flesh out this whole idea a little bit more. What I will say very quickly is the Bible was not written in English. And so any English version of the Bible you read is a translation or a paraphrase. Paraphrases are very helpful. A a good paraphrase is something like the message. A paraphrase really strips away a lot of the confusing kind of Bible talk and helps us to know really what is being said right now. But a paraphrase is not a translation. So I often will recommend, if you want to start with a paraphrase, no problem. But don't end with a paraphrase. Take a paraphrase and let it help you understand a translation best. The translation I use is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. And the NRSV is really the one that the Episcopal Church uses. Um, It is considered probably the most accurate translation. Sometimes, though, being most accurate means that the language is not as smooth as it could be. And so one of the smoother but still good translations that I like to recommend is the NIV. 
And there are many, very many versions of that. You've got the T and IV and other things like that. It's all right. Read your Bible. I'd much rather you read a Bible that is a translation that's a little wonky than to not read anything at all. So don't worry about it. Um, but the NRSV is what I use for this study. All right. So that's the end of the first section around unity. A reminder that I love to engage with you live. So in the comment thread below or to the side, depending on where you're watching this, um, do make a comment or question. Monica Rosser is moderating all of those comments and she'll make sure that I get them live while we're teaching. Um, and you can also email her as well if you want to make that question or comment anonymous. All right, so let's continue with section two, the mind of Christ. This is the meaty section of today's study. All right, we have four sections, yes, but this second section, the mind of Christ, is really where we get into some good, deep stuff. So let's look at verse five. We're going to go five through 11 here. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. These few verses are huge. I want to remind you and put this statement in context. Paul is writing before any of the Gospels have been written. Paul is writing this letter before any of the creeds have been established. Paul is writing this letter really before anything has been written about Jesus. Paul's letters are as early as the writings of Jesus get. Now, there are a few non-canonical Gospels that would have been written at this time. And by non-canonical, I mean they ultimately didn't make it into our canon, our Bible. So those are likely out there floating around. And you can Google that and read non-canonical Gospels to your heart's content online. Um, most of them did not survive to today in whole. But you can read pieces, and some of the stories are really great. But Paul's writings are just about as early as we have any writings on Jesus. And if we look at these few verses, this is stunningly close to the theology of Christ and the theology of the Trinity that the church ultimately lands on hundreds of years later, right? The church rolls this around and wrestles and they have to flesh all this out in some way with the creeds and the cant and the other things. But here we have Paul in just a few verses with an amazingly good theological understanding of who Jesus is and how Jesus fits into the whole big story of God's salvation work. So let's look at these kind of in pieces, kind of part one, part two of this particular section. Part one is genuinely, radically subversive, right? This whole statement is subversive in the sense that Paul is claiming and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Let's just take that idea. For us, it sounds totally normal. 
right? We talk about Jesus as Lord all the time. Yes, that is something that is very modern. Put yourself back in the first century. Who in the first century, in the Roman world, is considered Lord, God, divine? Augustus. So at this point in time, when Paul is in prison and Paul is writing these letters and trying to start all these churches, there is one emperor, and that is Emperor Augustus. And Augustus has unified the whole Roman Empire. There was a civil war going on in the Roman Empire. People were jockeying for control and authority. And the people who got trampled were all of the poor people, all of the people just doing daily work. And Augustus comes in and sweeps through and unifies everybody, creates a very strong sense of stability and certainty and security. Maybe you weren't in a comfortable life, but all of a sudden the fighting has really stopped. And Augustus, because he is glorified by being able to unify the Roman Empire, he begins to adopt a way of understanding his own being, his own role on earth, as being connected to the divine. In a sense, Augustus harkens back a few centuries to Alexander the Great, who was able to extend his Grecian empire all over the Mediterranean world. Rome effectively adopted or usurped the Greek empire. Not a perfect one-to-one, but that's a pretty easy way to understand that Rome kind of stepped into the shoes of Greece and that one empire gave way to another. But the empire of Rome really begins under Augustus. And so Paul in this time period is claiming that Jesus is Lord. And that's not just about Jesus. That is also about Augustus. In this Roman world, in this Roman empire, Augustus was seen as the savior, providing the certainty that everyone so desired. And Paul is speaking right into that and saying, no, 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 it's not Augustus. It is actually Jesus Christ. And Jesus is Lord, is Savior in a way that Augustus can never be. And here's what can be, we can credit a lot to Paul for creating this clarity. Because as we all probably know or have heard at some point, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah was one that would come and free the people from their bondage, would free the people from whatever non-Jewish identity was in control. So very much like Moses freed the people from Egyptian slavery, they expected the Messiah would free them from the bondage of Rome. Yet Jesus came and didn't look at all like a military leader, didn't look at all like someone who was going to overthrow the worldly power. Instead, what did he do? He died. He was killed by that worldly power. But then he was resurrected. And in that resurrection, what Jesus does is defeats the world's power. Jesus completely changes the entire story. No longer are we looking to be saved from whatever pain we have in this world, but there's a bigger purpose. We are looking to be unified with God. We are looking to point people toward the goodness of God in the world. That death, even death itself, is no longer the end, but just a change 
And in that moment, we get freed from this world and can be unified with God in totality. And so Paul makes this very big jump against Augustus for Christ's lordship. There is also a connection here about Jesus undoing the sinfulness of humanity. And why that matters is because Paul, remember, is a good Jew. Paul is a very intelligent, well-educated Jewish leader. And Paul understands that for Jews to connect this unpredictable Messiah, who is not that military leader, he's got to make a connection pretty explicit. And Paul does that by hearkening back to the being straying from God's purpose at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? Humanity had this unity, and then we lost that unity. Somewhere in the back, behind us in the past, humanity has become disconnected from God. We, on our own, cannot reconnect ourselves, but God can reconnect us. And through the person of Jesus, God has undone that fall, that sinfulness, and allowed us, provided us the bridge to reconnect us to that perfect unity with God. So we're going to take this first section and kind of flesh it out a little bit. Look back at verses 5 through 7. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. There's a lot to unpack here. First, Paul acknowledges that Jesus was indeed already equal to God. So there is a, an understanding here that Jesus's divinity is something that pre-existed. Right? So we get this idea that the word was with God, that that was already present, and that Jesus's humanity, his incarnation, is just an expression of the divinity that already existed. The decision to become human, to kind of go all the way down this road of obedience, even death on the cross, is not a decision to stop being divine. It was really a decision to show us what divine really is, what divinity really is, this self-sacrificial, all-consuming love, even to the point of death. And that creates for us a model of what we are called to be as followers of Jesus in the world. Keep going. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in that moment of obedience and death, retains his equality with God, retains his full divinity, that God, in Christ, was reconciling the world to himself by showing us the kind of love that God truly is. The points of verses 6 and 7 is that Jesus didn't regard his, regard his equality with God as something to be taken advantage of or exploited. This is really important because we know that there at the foot of the cross, Jesus is being mocked. You know, the person, this guy who was able to raise the dead, make the blind see, heal the lepers, and on and on, should be able to save himself. If you're really the son of God, 
get down off that cross and save yourself. Paul understands that moment as Jesus submitting, being obedient to God. And in that submission, showing us the true character of God, the true heart of that self-sacrificial love to convince us all. Look at verse 9 through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This moment connects to the beginning, right? At verse 9, we get this, therefore. So everything that came before, that verses 5 through 8, is laying out this very complex theology of Jesus so that we understand its purpose. The answer here is that his incarnation on the cross, Jesus has done what only God can do. Jesus has hearkened back to that original sinfulness, that fall, that disconnection, whatever you want to call it, that human condition. Whether you root yourself in original sin, in a fall, in anything like that, you can, you can't, doesn't matter to me. What I want us to acknowledge, though, is that humanity is messy, that we are, in a sense, problematic. And that kind of problem is one that we cannot solve on our own. Left to our own devices, we cannot be the kind of people that God created us to be in this world. But with Jesus showing us the way, providing the path, creating the bridge, we can actually go on this journey of salvation, which we're going to get to in just a verse. And in that journey of salvation, we can actually become more and more like God imagined us to be. This is the very heart of the Christian vision of God himself, that we see the self-expressions of God as different, but perfectly intimately related. Do you see what Paul says there? God the Father. Paul understands that Jesus and God are so intimately related that they are expressions of the same oneness, so much so that we can begin to see that God the Father and Christ the Son are very interrelated. And that's really hinting at what will ultimately become Trinitarian theology in the future. All right, so we've got a few other questions here. Liz asks or makes a comment, seems to me that to be, seems to me that this is all about being humble, like a monk's liturgy. Um, yes. So humility is really key to Paul. And it's kind of funny because Paul is, um, is quite proud of himself. Um, if we look at all the letters of Paul, Paul is, uh, really thinks that he's quite good. Um, Paul knows in a sense, that he's intelligent, that he is skillful, that he is bearing good fruit. And so in a sense, <laughs> if we want to be charitable, we can say that um, Paul is very realistic, that objectively speaking, Paul's been very effective. Paul has planted churches, brought thousands and thousands of people to discipleship, 
with Jesus. And at the time, I mean, think about, you know, thousands and thousands of people today is pretty good. Thousands and thousands of people back then is huge. So Paul can kind of just look behind him and say, yeah, you know, I did pretty good. Paul also, though, perhaps in a way that is more, more so than any other Christian at this time, pushes himself toward humility. I think we could argue that Paul might be the first really, really skillful, successful, effective Christian disciple who knows very certainly that he's got to check his high opinion of himself. It's difficult in this situation for Paul not to acknowledge that he's pretty good, but he is never doing this work on his own. Paul is never claiming that the work that he has done, the successes that he has had, is anything more than his partnership with God, than his salvation through Christ. And so in that way, there is a humility. His humility is, you know, um, <laughs> is uh, cre- uh, could be better, I guess you could say, um, but I do not think we should point fingers because we all, in our own way, know what it feels like to be proud of ourselves. Um, when we do something well, it's okay to say we did it well. But I think what Paul models for us is a way of understanding that whatever good we do and success we have can be credited to God. We were created by God. We were given gifts by God. And anything that we do with our gifts is in gratitude to what God has given us. And that's where people without a commitment to Christ, I think, kind of can get lost. Because God's gifts to us, those spiritual gifts from God, mean that we can ground our entire lives in gratitude. And gratitude keeps us focused and humble. If we don't have that anchor of gratitude, then we begin to use the gifts that God gave us for our own gain. And that's the fork that we find ourselves, where we find ourselves when we choose God. We'll get to... Put a bookmark in this because the work of salvation is what we're getting to in section three of today's study. And it's very important for us to kind of flesh out what salvation really is and as different than what a lot of Christians say salvation is. Um, And so just kind of pause there. We'll flesh this out a little bit more in a second. Um, And then Steve asked, um, if he is God, who's he obeying? Good question, Steve. So that is... That's a very human question, and it is no problem to ask it, because I think every person who tries at all to understand the Trinity at some point has to ask that question. So one of the you know, great moments is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane freaking out, right? Jesus, I want you to know that I, I really love Jesus's humanity. I mean, yes, I believe in Jesus's full divinity, of course, but Jesus's full divinity to me is a little boring. I really love Jesus's full humanity. And when Jesus has those moments where he makes a choice 
or kind of has a little bit of snark. I sort of like that, Jesus. Um, And one of the most beautiful human moments um, in our gospel story is about Jesus in the garden, where he is praying for the cup to pass from him. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he is, he is willing to be obedient, but oh goodness, if anything else could happen, that'd be great. You know, Jesus is in the garden freaking out to the point where he is sweating blood, trying to convince God for this to happen in any other way, right? Listen, he can have a parade, he can sing a song, there are plenty of other things he could do than dying on a cross. And so he's in, and he's saying to God, God, anything else... I'm in. I'd much rather do anything than die on a cross. And in that moment, we should, if we're just kind of rational humans, say, um, who is he talking to? Because if Jesus is fully divine, why is he struggling with himself? I mean, it's near schizophrenic, right? Where he's like talking to who? Himself? <sighs> it is a complicated question to ask. And this is going to be an answer that does not, will not likely not feel so satisfying. Um, but this is the answer that I kind of give myself. First, we cannot fully understand the mind of God in our human condition. So the question itself, asking that question itself is problematic because it presupposes that we can understand the immense size, just the the bigness of God, and we can't. And so what the church has said over time is basically where I land. Here's the story we've been given, and we can make a choice to understand it in mystery or to understand it as something untrue. I choose to accept the mystery, to accept that there are just some things I cannot understand yet, but that I believe is true. And that's just one of them. You know, the Trinity, all joking aside, um, the Trinity is impossible. We cannot understand the Trinity in a way that will feel objectively satisfying in our human condition. And so we get the choice. We either believe it anyway, or we say, it does not make sense, it cannot be true, and so, no. And I think that there is still, struggling to understand is good. So struggle. But know that the struggle is actually where we find our faithfulness, not the answer. And so I would implore you not to struggle with the only satisfying end to be a clear answer, but instead struggle because when we struggle in faithfulness, we actually grow closer and closer to God. So we've got a couple other points. Liz says, yeah, we can identify with the human Jesus. Absolutely. That's who I identify with. Um, Michelle asks, he suffers so that we can relate. (laughs) Oh, Michelle. Um, Okay. Bookmark that, because I need to get into this third section about the way salvation works. Um, Michelle's question is a good one, a very good one. Um, 
in effect, much of what the church has done throughout the last 2,000 years anchors itself in what we call atonement theology. And atonement theology is born out of many of the scriptures, I mean, many of the um, sacred texts, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, all those, um, trying to flesh out and figure out what really did Jesus do? Because we can say pretty clearly Jesus was great, right? Jesus did miracles. Jesus taught and told stories that are amazing. But what did Jesus really do on the cross? That question is, I think, an important one to ask. And where the church has landed most often is that effectively Jesus became the sacrifice that allows us to connect with God in a full sense. That's born out of an older understanding of what God wants from us. If we take kind of classic, down-the-middle Jewish theology, God asks for a sacrifice from us in order to gain, oh, I hate to say gain favor, that's not exactly right, um, but to gain a deeper connection. And so that's why we get good, faithful Jewish people coming to the temple and making sacrifices, sacrificing animals. Because in a sense, the sacrifice of an animal, the spilling of blood, actually cleans us or deepens our connection with God. And so it makes sense that early Christians understood Jesus as a blood sacrifice, that literally spilling his blood is what provides the opportunity for us to reconnect fully with God. Let's jump into this third section because I think we can actually understand his death and his sacrifice, his suffering, a little differently. So let's jump ahead. Section three about how salvation works. We're going to look at verse 12 through 18. All right, turn to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the world of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. <clears throat> okay, we'll pause there. Paul really does take the idea of salvation seriously in this passage. When we say salvation, we all have an idea of what we mean, or perhaps we are confident to fake an understanding of what we mean when we use the word salvation. Um, salvation is quite literally being saved from something, right? And we might describe being saved from many different things, saved from pain, saved from death, saved from hell. 
Um, in the history of Christianity, the understanding of salvation has evolved, right? Um, many of you have heard me joke before that one of the recent evolutions, I think, is this kind of fear of hell. And I, oh my gosh, if I could have been a priest, you know, 50, 100 years ago where people were really afraid of burning in hell, that'd be so much easier, right? Oh my gosh, it's so motivating. Um, but I would say that for most of us, we really are not operating as disciples of Jesus because we fear burning in hell. Um, and I, I think I want to say to you, if you do, I mean, if that is your primary motivator to prevent your soul from being burned in eternal hell, stop. Because that's not, that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus is not trying to scare us into faithfulness in God. No. What Paul understands here in salvation is that we're really being saved from the depravity of our humanity. And I say that knowing that that could be heard by a lot of people in a particular way. So just, just hang with me for a minute and let me tell you the way that I interpret this, right? It's just me. Um, but I think if I can offer you my interpretation, perhaps you'll here are a few things that you might want to ponder and perhaps, you know, use in the future. Um, so there are, <clears throat> salvation comes apart from the crooked and perverse generation. So when we look at that crooked and perverse, verse 15, I think we get a glimpse of what Paul really thinks about what salvation really means. So there are many ways to translate the words crooked and perverse, um, twisted and depraved and whatever. Effectively, what we want to say is that we understand that the clear thing that Paul is trying to say here is that the world is messy and problematic. The world is effectively separated from God. And if all we're doing is anchoring ourselves to the world, we got some problems. Because as I've mentioned, Paul definitely understands that left to our own devices, we will fall away from God for sure. For Paul, salvation is tied to what he has already said earlier in the chapter in verses three through five. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look not on your own interests, but to the interests of others so that you can have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. So Paul understands this section of salvation and what he's already said, which is we are meant to turn away from selfish ambition and conceit and turn toward humility, regarding others as better than ourselves. Do not look at our own interests, but look at the interests of others. That kind of humility is really where Paul anchors his salvation. He's drawing a very clear line from selfish ambition to the humility of Christ. So in other words, when we follow Christ's example, where we do not put ourselves first, but we put one another first. What we are doing is we're turning away from the crooked and perverse generation. We're turning away from the mess and the brokenness of the world, and we are turning toward, in humility, turning toward Christ so that we put the interest of others above ourselves, that we consume and assume a self-sacrificial identity, and in doing so, we are acting like Christ. We are following Christ. We are actually being saved. 
All right, salvation is a process. We see in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What I want you to hear very clearly is that salvation is not a moment. Salvation is a process. Paul himself says we work out our salvation. Working out salvation means it's not done in a moment. There are many, many Christians who very faithfully believe that salvation is about a moment. When you say the right words in the right way, with the right posture, and you begin to be a follower of Jesus. But as I've said in the past, that moment is critical. A moment when we decide that this is the kind of life we want is absolutely critical. But that moment when we decide to follow Christ is the beginning of a lifelong journey where we work out our salvation. We work out that salvation with a humility to give ourselves over self-sacrificially to what Jesus would have us do in the world. In addition, Paul is very clear that salvation is not given to us based on our good works, but rather good works come from our working out our salvation. In verse 13, Paul says, God is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul very clearly understands that the good works, the fruit of our faithfulness, is not what saves us, but rather the fruit of our faithfulness is because we are in the process of being saved. Our journey of salvation, our commitment to love, and our commitment to self-sacrificial love is actually what helps us to bear fruit, to do those good, godly works in the world. And if that isn't enough, Paul reminds us that to do good means we can't argue with each other. Ah, crap, right? I mean, I can't let this one go because Paul is very clear, very intent, that for the good of the whole, we have to put ourselves above others. I'm sorry, <laughs> we have to put others above ourselves. And in doing that, we commit to really not being argumentative about our faith. Let me be clear. What Paul is saying here is not that we should not be in conflict of any kind with one another. What Paul is saying here is that our conflict should always be constructive, right? When we conflict with one another, that in itself is not a bad thing. But that conflict can bear good fruit if we are doing that conflict with a very deep Christian commission. I'm sorry, Christian, what was I saying? Commitment. Ha <laughs> ha, that's the word. When we go into conflict, and we do so with a very clear Christian commitment to one another, then that conflict can bear all kinds of good fruit. I liken this to kind of what you see in healthy families, right? I think healthy families argue. Healthy families are in conflict regularly. But healthy families know they can argue all they want. 
but they're still family. That nothing separates their unity. I mean, how often do you see siblings who fight all the time and who needle each other all the time are each other's best defenders, right? I mean, I can remember with my own sister, we may have fought all the time, but nobody hurts my sister, right? I'm the first person to defend her. And that's kind of what Paul is setting up here is this idea that we are now with the family we choose. As followers of Christ, we commit to one another with such fidelity that even when we disagree and even when we conflict, those conflicts, when we do so in love, help us to come closer and closer as a community to the kind of people that God wants us to be. So that's the end of that third section. I see we have a few other comments and questions. Um, let me see. Audrey, we have, we can never fully understand the mind of God. We can choose to understand as mystery or untrue. Struggles where we find our faith. Satisfying end is not where we should keep or not entirely sure um, what this question means, but I will say when I said struggle is where we find our faith formation, um, there's a great story that comes out of St. Augustine of Hippo in the third, in the fourth century, actually. Um, he wrote a small book called The Confessions. Um, if you've never read it, it's, I mean, it is tiny and it's really kind of autobiographical. Augustine, who at that time is a bishop, confesses being a kind of an unruly young person. Um, and he goes through all of these stories about he hurt people and he stole stuff and on and on. And what Augustine claims is that faithfulness is not about being perfect. Faithfulness is about struggling to admit our imperfections and ask God into those imperfections with the strength of vulnerability so that God can, with us and our, our own internal desire, help to make us better and better, help to refine us over time. Being a good Christian disciple does not mean you don't make mistakes. Being a good Christian disciple means that when you make mistakes, you own up to those mistakes and that you can be redeemed for those mistakes. And not only one-on-one, -on -one, but in the community that you take responsibility for the hurt that you cause and that those you hurt forgive because they ultimately want the best for you. That is a really complicated, actually, it's not complicated. That's a very um, un, what do I want to say? That is a countercultural way of being because we live in a culture that says you do something wrong, you're punished for doing wrong. Maybe. At our best, our culture says you can be punished enough to where you're given another chance. Maybe. That's not entirely where a lot of people land. But what Christianity is saying is if you do something wrong and you wish to be forgiven, you are forgiven. And that in each other, in that relationship, the person who does the hurt puts the other in front of themselves and asks for forgiveness and commits to doing good in the future. And the person who was hurt cares so much about the hurt-er 
that they also put the person who hurt above themselves and forgive. And in doing that together, everyone moves forward. That's pretty countercultural, y'all. That's not really what we do right now. We tend to say, you did something wrong, you get punished. The end. What Paul understands here is that when wrong is done, we have a moment in which we struggle. And in the struggle, we really build our faithfulness. That's key. It is not in our perfection that we build faithfulness. No, no. In our successes and our security and our achievement, we're not building faithfulness. It's when the going gets tough. It's when we find ourselves in the pit, in the ditch, in the pain, and in the mess. That's when we get the opportunity to struggle and struggle in that faithful way that helps us be better. Some of you have probably heard me say that, you know, in my experience, some of the best church around are recovery communities. Because when people go into recovery from anything, the first step is acknowledging they have a problem, is acknowledging that they cannot solve their problem on their own, that they need others, that they need God in their life to help them heal. When you have hit the bottom and you find out that the bottom holds, you can begin to move forward with incredible faithfulness, with incredible clarity and commitment, because you know in your soul, in your core, that you cannot do this alone. That's in effect what Paul is saying here in this letter. We cannot do this alone. We cannot find salvation alone. And for those of us who have had a lot of comfort and security and success, that message can be very, very hard for us to hear. So we are nearing the end today. And I want to hit the fourth section, um, but I see one more quick question. I see from Sally. Um, Paul's clear we work out our salvation, humility, and lay down our power for the good of our neighbors. Why does social justice get sort of a bad rap in certain Christian circles? Oh, that's a good question. So Sally asks, why does social justice get a bad rap in certain Christian circles? Um <laughs> So, Sally, here's what I want to say to you. Our time's almost up. I'm going to save that question for next week. Um, so just hold it. I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to get to you next week. That's where we will start next week, because I want to make sure that I tie up Chapter 2 at least a little bit. Um, this fourth section, which is really kind of almost the second half of Chapter 2, is really about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, it's, Paul talks about both Timothy and Epaphroditus um, in a very specific way. When Paul talks about Timothy, Paul talks about sending Timothy back to the Philippian church at some point, but not now. And Paul talks of Timothy in a very caring way. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, interests, not those of Christ. But Timothy's worth you know. 
how like a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So in that moment, Paul is acknowledging something interesting. In a sense, what Paul's saying is, I know Timothy's not quite as good as me in doing that stuff that you love, but Timothy loves you. There's a very interesting commentary here on what Christian leadership looks like. For many Christians, they may be attracted to people who have a very clear high skill set. And although very highly skilled people can be great Christian leaders, they are not the only kinds of Christian leaders. There are Christian leaders who are deeply, deeply caring people, who are concerned for the welfare of the community above all. And even if they don't have some kind of worldly skill, the fact that they care very deeply for the people and for the community makes their leadership worthy. And Paul, in a sense, is saying in this very short little passage that the Philippians have a great caring leader in the person of Timothy, even if Timothy is not who Paul himself is, and perhaps who the community really wants. They really want Paul. But what Paul's saying is, I'm going to send you Timothy. And Timothy's good. And Timothy's goodness and love and caring is really what you need. And isn't that a great lesson for so many of us in Christian communities where we might hope for someone like Paul, but we might get someone like Timothy. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is Timothy's who we need. For the long term, Timothy's who we need. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Um, And then finally, I'll just say um, Epaphroditus is someone who's from Philippi who has been traveling with Paul and Timothy. And now that Paul's in prison, Epaphroditus is going to be sent back to the Philippians to be present with them until Paul or Timothy can get back to them himself. So thank you all for joining me. Um, I love this, and I hope that you do too. Um, This is one of my favorite moments in the week. And gosh, last week we had such um, great connection and engagement. Um, I want to encourage all of you to make sure we know that you were here. Let us know. And Share this with a friend. Um, We've had many people way outside of this Dallas community connect to this study, especially this summer, because people like you have recommended it. And so if you're getting something out of this, then both let me know and let other people know, because nobody can invite people into a Christian community or a Christian experience like this better than a friend. So share this. Tell a friend about it. Bring a friend next week, and we'll continue to expand our circle and all for the glory of God. I hope that you all have a wonderful week. God bless you all, and I'll see you next Wednesday for Chapter 3.